for Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news, focusing on everything related to the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments of mental illness. All that brought to you without the hype and distortion that is typical of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry and along the way trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues while trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. And <clears throat> welcome to this latest edition of Psychiatry Today, pre-recorded for initial airing on Wednesday evening, March the 8th, 2017. First up on tonight's podcast, there are two articles that I want to go over with you that show scientists are learning more and more about what may be specific problems behind a very serious child psychiatric disorder, autism. Uh, <clears throat> scientists are learning more and more about the causes, which is a very good thing because up until now it's been a tremendous mystery. And unfortunately, as far as the myths and misconceptions about mental health issues, uh, none are more insidious than those around autism. Uh, I'm talking especially about the lies, the outright lies and fabrications that have been promulgated that autism has anything whatsoever to do with childhood vaccines. Uh, this is one of the most insidious lies and mistruths ever known to modern medicine and the researcher that <clears throat> promulgated this idea was later discovered to have fabricated his data uh, the journal article about it was retracted by the journal that published it, uh, which was in Europe. And he was uh, expelled from his academic institution and his academic rank taken away. Uh, yet these ideas persist. And you have um, these conspiracy theories about autism and vaccines uh, that still to some people this day, Promulgate, and it's it's very sad because as parents deny uh, their children's right to be vaccinated and to be safe from potentially devastating disabling illnesses, uh, they also put other children who come in contact with their children in risk uh, for for the contagiousness of these diseases. And then what you have is a situation where pediatricians have to take a stand. And they have to say, well, if a parent refuses to have uh, their patient vaccinated, then they can't treat that child uh, because of how it puts other children um, in the community at risk. <clears throat> so there you have it. It's a great big mess because of all the myths and lies about autism. And that's why it's very important that researchers make more progress into figuring out what's causing it and um, how to better address it. So the first of these two articles is that researchers have found a link 
to, uh, between autism and herpes infection during pregnancy. Uh, now, women who were actively infected with genital herpes during early pregnancy had twice the odds of giving birth to a child later diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. This is according to a study by scientists at the Center for Infection and Immunity at Columbia University. The study is the first to provide immunological evidence on the role of gestational infection in autism, reporting an association between maternal anti-herpes simplex virus 2 or HSV2 antibodies and risk for ASD in offspring. Uh, ASD, again, is Autism Spectrum Disorder. The results were published in the journal M-Sphere, a journal of the American Society for Microbiology. Now, uh, just to explain a little bit, if a woman is infected with HSV2, then she will have elevated levels of antibodies toward that virus. So this is what they're measuring. Now, the lead author, Milada Mahik, says, we believe the mother's immune response to HSV2 could be disrupting fetal central nervous system development, raising the risk for autism. The authors do not believe the risk is due to direct infection of the fetus because such infections are typically fatal. Instead, they suggest that the neurodevelopmental outcomes which lead to ASD are due to primary or reactivation of infection in mothers with inflammation in close proximity to the womb. So again, it's not that the fetus itself is becoming infected with herpes and that's how uh, they develop autism spectrum disorders. It's again just exposure to the mother's immune response to the herpes virus. About one in five American women carries HSV2, also known as genital herpes, a highly contagious and lifelong infection, usually spread through sex. After an initial outbreak, HSV2 lives in nerve cells and is often inactive with flare-ups occurring with diminishing frequency as the body builds up immunity to the virus. The researchers sought to explore the link between maternal infection and risk for autism, and they focused on five pathogens in all, not just herpes. These five together are collectively known by the acronym TORCH agents, T-O-R-C-H. The T stands for Toxoplasma gondii, uh, that's a pathogen you may remember from the recent controversy about cat ownership and increased risk of schizophrenia. Uh, toxoplasmosis is uh, a parasite. It's found in cat feces among uh, other places, including um, uncooked infected meat. And there had been some researchers who felt that exposure to toxoplasmosis could increase the risk of schizophrenia, and therefore they were looking, believe it or not, at rates of cat ownership and developing schizophrenia. 
the latest paper to come out on this subject has found there does not seem to be any increased risk of schizophrenia simply from owning a cat. Uh, those of you cat lovers out there will be very reassured to know that. And then moving on, what, naming the other torch agents, uh, actually T, the TO in toxoplasmosis is the first two letters of torch. The R stands for rubella virus. Then the C is cytomegalovirus. And then you have the uh, H is the herpes simplex viruses, type 1 and 2. Uh, rubella and cytomegalovirus are just other viruses that um, are out there in the community. Uh, rubella circulates widely uh, among and, and leaves children vulnerable to serious uh, viral infections. Cytomegalovirus um, would not cause most people to succumb to it, but is uh, very prevalent in immunocompromised populations, for example, AIDS patients. Now, um, exposure during pregnancy to the herpes viruses can lead to miscarriage and birth defects, as well as uh, also exposure to the other uh, agents that are the torch agents, toxoplasmosis, rubella, and cytomegalovirus. Researchers took blood samples from 412 mothers of children diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder and 463 mothers of children without autism spectrum disorder. And this was the autism birth cohort study. And it was overseen by the Norwegian Institute of Public Health. Uh, again, Scandinavian countries keep extremely meticulous birth and health and death records. So if you want to conduct epidemiological studies, um, those are great places to do it. The samples were taken at two time points around week 18 of pregnancy, so well into the second trimester, and then again at birth. And the samples were analyzed for levels of antibodies to each of these torch agents. Now, the researchers found high levels of antibodies to herpes simplex virus type 2, uh, the one that typically causes genital herpes, but not to any of the other agents um, in terms of what antibodies were correlated with elevated risk of autism spectrum disorder. This link was only evident in blood samples taken at a time point reflecting exposure during early pregnancy when the fetal nervous system undergoes rapid development and not at birth. The finding mirrors earlier epidemiological data indicating that activation of the maternal immune system during early to mid-pregnancy is associated with long-term developmental and behavioral problems in offspring. In all, 13% of mothers in the study tested positive for anti-HSV2 antibodies at mid-pregnancy. Of these, only 12% reported having HSV lesions before pregnancy or during the first trimester, a likely indication that most infections were asymptomatic. The effect of anti-HSV antibodies on the risk for autism spectrum disorder 
was only seen in male children, not females. But because the number of females with autism spectrum disorder in the study was small, the researchers say there's not enough evidence to conclude that the effect is gender specific. Although generally speaking, autism is more common in males anyway. According to the authors, further study is needed to determine if screening and suppression of HSV2 infection during pregnancy is needed. We'll be right back with more about this and other research um, into autism spectrum disorder um, after our first commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. This is Dr. George. Join me on Wednesday mornings from 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock when we talk about more than medicine. It's now about staying healthy, but it's about the strategy to do so. Join me on Medicine on Call. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about studies showing that maternal herpes simplex virus infection increases the risk of autism spectrum disorder. Uh, the infection that takes place during pregnancy or is there during pregnancy. Now, the, the cause or causes of most cases of autism are still unknown, but evidence suggests a role for both genetic and environmental factors. This study suggests that inflammation and immune activation may contribute to risk Herpes simplex virus 2 could be one of any number of infectious agents involved. And that's an important point here. Of course, there are many, many more children who wind up with autism spectrum disorders uh, from mothers who did not have the HSV2 virus. So the point of the research is not to say that is the sole cause. The point is saying, look, when you have increased inflammation from at least this one virus, again, not the other so-called torch agents, and that can increase the risk of autism spectrum disorders. Um, It is another clue uh, to what some of the causes may be, but obviously there are others. And that brings me to our next article, and this is not about an environmental or an infectious agent that causes autism, but... It's still very important research giving us new and important insights into the illness. Uh, This study shows that MRI scans can predict which high-risk babies will develop autism as toddlers. Uh, Using the MRI or magnetic resonance imaging scans in infants with older siblings who have autism, researchers from around the country were able to correctly predict 80% of those infants who 
who would later meet criteria for autism at the age of two. The study was published in the journal Nature, and it is the first to show it is possible to identify which infants among those with older siblings with autism will be diagnosed with autism at 24 months of age. The study shows that early brain development biomarkers could be very useful in identifying babies at the highest risk for autism before behavioral symptoms emerge. Typically, the earliest an autism diagnosis can be made is between ages 2 and 3. But for babies with older autistic siblings, this imaging approach may help predict during the first year of life which babies are most likely to receive an autism diagnosis at 24 months. The research project included hundreds of children from across the country. And we have not had a way to detect the biomarkers of autism before the condition sets in and symptoms develop. Now these very promising leads suggest that may be in fact possible. People with autism spectrum disorder have characteristic social deficits and demonstrate a range of ritualistic, repetitive, and stereotyped behaviors. It is estimated that one out of 68 children develop autism in the United States. For infants with older siblings with autism, the risk may be as high as 20 out of every 100 births. There are about 3 million people with autism in the United States and tens of millions around the world. Despite much research, it has been impossible to identify those at ultra-high risk for autism prior to 24 months of age, which is the earliest time when the hallmark behavioral characteristics of autism spectrum disorder can be observed and a diagnosis made in most children. For this study, researchers from around the country conducted MRI scans of infants at 6, 12, and 24 months of age. They found that the babies who developed autism experienced a hyper-expansion of brain surface area from 6 to 12 months, as compared to babies who had an older sibling with autism but did not themselves show evidence of the condition at 24 months of age. Increased growth rate of surface area in the first year of life was linked to increased growth rate of overall brain volume in the second year of life. Brain overgrowth was tied to the emergence of autistic social deficits in the second year of life. Previous behavioral studies of infants who later developed autism, who had older siblings with autism, revealed that social behaviors typical of autism emerged during the second year of life. The researchers then took these data, MRIs of brain volume, surface area, cortical thickness, that is the thickness of the cortex, the uh, important layer of brain tissue, at ages 6 and 12 months of age, and also the gender of the infants, and 
They used a computer program to identify a way to classify babies most likely to meet criteria for autism at 24 months. The computer program developed the best algorithm to accomplish this, and the researchers applied the algorithm to a separate set of study participants. The researchers found that brain differences at six and 12 months of age in infants with older siblings with autism correctly predicted eight out of 10 infants who would later meet criteria for autism at 24 months of age in comparison to those infants with older autism spectrum disorder siblings who did not meet criteria for autism at 24 months. This means potentially identifying infants who will later develop autism before the symptoms of autism begin to consolidate into a diagnosis. And that has major implications for treatment because we know that the sooner treatment interventions are begun, the better the prognosis for children with autism. If parents have a child with autism and then have a second child, such a test might be clinically useful in identifying infants at highest risk for developing this condition. The idea would then be to intervene pre-symptomatically before the emergence of the defining symptoms of autism. Research could then begin to examine the effect of interventions on children during a period before the syndrome is present and when the brain is most malleable. Such interventions may have a greater chance of improving outcomes than treatments started after there are obvious symptoms that lead to a diagnosis. Putting this into the larger context of neuroscience research and treatment, there is currently a big push within the field of neurodegenerative diseases to be able to detect the biomarkers of these conditions before patients are diagnosed at a time when preventative efforts are possible. In Parkinson's disease, for instance, once a person is diagnosed, they've already lost a substantial portion of the dopamine receptors in the movement-regulating structures in their brain, making treatment less effective. The idea with autism is similar. Once autism is diagnosed at age two to three years, the brain has already begun to change substantially. Well, the, I think the main impact of this study is that hopefully researchers will be able to take this step further in that not only can they take younger siblings of kids with autism and be able to tell in advance which of them will go on to develop it, but they can perhaps learn ways to study children more broadly who may be at risk for autism and predict things in advance. Now, are you going to widely do MRI scans on lots of kids just to screen for this? No, of course not. Um, that's too difficult and too expensive. Uh, but again, it is a step in the right direction that scientists are finding differences in the brain, again, a biological correlation between uh, something that's measurable and 
later developing the symptoms of autism. Hopefully studies like the two that I've talked to you about thus far in tonight's podcast will go a long way to countering the poisonous myths that autism is somehow associated with childhood vaccines and uh, lead to better educated parents making better treatment decisions uh, for their children, including letting them have vaccines. Moving on tonight's podcast to another subject. This article caught my eye. Twice weekly yoga classes plus home practice is effective in reducing symptoms of depression. Now, this comes to us from Boston University Medical Center. It is by far not the first study to document the benefits of yoga in terms of depression uh, and or reducing stress. But again, uh, the more information that's out there, the better. People who suffer from depression need all the help they can get. Even with all the antidepressant medications we have on the market, there's still a substantial number of people who suffer tremendously from depression, don't get all the help they need from medication, have limited access to psychotherapy because of financial or insurance reasons, and therefore uh, need to bring in other modalities to help alleviate their symptoms of depression. And according to the study, people who suffer from depression should participate in yoga and deep coherent breathing classes at least twice weekly, plus practice at home to receive a significant reduction in their symptoms. The findings, which appear in the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine, provide preliminary support for the use of yoga-based interventions as an alternative or supplement to pharmacologic treatments for depression. Major depressive disorder is common, recurrent, chronic and disabling. Due in part to its prevalence, depression is globally responsible for more years lost to disability than any other disease. Up to 40% of individuals treated with antidepressant medications do not achieve full remission. All right, we'll talk more about the yoga study after this commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps. These are generally benign growths that occur from chronic sinus infection or allergies that are either undertreated or have not been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery and correction of a deviated nasal septum and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office. We use a state-of-the-art equipment so that you can see the problem. You will be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment. We believe in old-fashioned medicine, where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. You can rest assured that all options will be offered before surgery is recommended, because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. 
Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Right now we're talking about how yoga classes can reduce depression. The study used Iyengar Yoga that has an emphasis on detail, precision, and alignment in the performer of posture and breath control. Individuals with major depressive disorder were randomized to the high-dose group, which was three 90-minute classes a week, along with home practice, or the low-dose group, which was two 90-minute classes a week, plus home practice, Both groups had significant decreases in their depressive symptoms and no significant differences in compliance. Although a greater number of subjects in the high-dose group had less depressive symptoms, the researchers believe attending twice-weekly classes plus home practice may constitute a less burdensome but still effective way to gain the mood benefits from the intervention. You can see how going to three 90-minute yoga classes a week and doing practice at home, that is a pretty significant commitment in terms of time. However, I I would tend to think that if you're depressed and needing treatment and suffering, then 
you're probably going to be more willing to put that time in if it's going to help you feel better. The study supports the use of a yoga and coherent breathing intervention in major depressive disorder in people who are not on antidepressants and in those who have been on a stable dose of antidepressants and have not achieved a resolution of their symptoms. So there's two different types of patients this can help, those who are not taking medication and that could include people who just haven't been started on medication or people who would prefer not to take antidepressant medication and there certainly are a number of those folks out there. And then I think most importantly it also benefited people who were on medication but still having symptoms. Now, compared with mood-altering medications, this intervention has the advantages of avoiding additional drug side effects and drug interactions. While most pharmacologic treatment for depression targets the monoamine systems, these are brain chemicals, brain hormones, and neurotransmitters known as serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine, this yoga intervention uh, scientists' uh, reports targets the parasympathetic nervous system uh, and the gamma aminobutyric acid system, or otherwise known as GABA, and provides a new avenue for treatment. Um, the parasympathetic nervous system governs uh, keeping the body and its uh, major systems functioning normally at rest. The sympathetic nervous system would kick in more when the system is under stress, your classic fight-or-flight response. Um, so naturally that would be more active if you're anxious and or depressed, whereas the parasympathetic would be more active when you're feeling better and not stressed. Now the GABA neurotransmitter system, um, you know, the one of the study authors just made that statement. Unfortunately, it was not expanded on in the rest of the article. I would love to know the evidence for that. Um, I haven't seen anything to document that anyone showed the GABA neurotransmitter system is connected somehow to the effects, um, much less the benefits, of yoga. If there were evidence for that, I think that would be fantastic. Uh, I'll see if I can find that and bring it to you. Um, by the way, I just want to mention, please, if you're taking a GABA supplement over the counter, do not waste your money anymore. Stop taking it. There is no way that taking exogenous GABA is going to help you. It's uh, That's not how it works. Um, there are medications that may... Uh, improve the functioning of the GABA pathways in the brain, but taking exogenous GABA supplements will not help. Instead, the take-home message from this study is yoga classes twice a week, if not three times, with home practice, that will help symptoms of depression. Um, you know, I think it's very, very important that we're having so many more research studies clearly document the benefits and confirming the benefits of non-drug interventions to treat depression. Okay, now next up on psychiatry today, let's talk about some brain research showing 
that creativity uh, is not necessarily confined to the right hemisphere, as lots of research uh, and writings uh, have touted over the years, but creativity has to do with the more connected brain. And we'll explore that when talking about this research that comes to us from Duke University. Seemingly countless self-help books and seminars tell you to tap into the right side of your brain to stimulate creativity. But forget the right brain myth. A new study suggests it's how well the two brain hemispheres communicate that sets highly creative people apart. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with this right-left brain situation, um, the left hemisphere of the brain typically subsumes functions like verbal communication skills, uh, reading and writing, language, and uh, this is especially in people who are right-handed, whereas the right brain, the right hemisphere of the brain in particular, uh, is looking at uh, spatial relationships and uh, logical problems, things like that. And you, uh, the, the, the stereotype was uh, people who are more creative uh, use their right hemisphere more. Now, for this study, statisticians at Duke University analyzed the network of white matter connections among 68 separate brain regions in healthy college-age volunteers. The brain's white matter lies underneath the outer gray matter. Uh, the white matter is composed of bundles of axons, which uh, can be think, thought of as wires with insulation around them, which connect billions of brain cells, and the cell bodies are the gray matter. And the these axons are these, again, these uh, which are like insulated wires, the myelin that surrounds them is like the insulation. This is what carries the electrical signals between brain cells. Um, a team led by a neuroscientist from the University of New Mexico collected the data using an MRI technique called diffusion tensor imaging, which allows researchers to peer through the skull of a living person and trace the paths of all the axons by following the movement of water along them. Computers then comb through each of these one gigabyte scans and convert them to three-dimensional maps, wiring diagrams of the brain. The team used a combination of tests to assess creativity. Some were measures of a type of problem-solving called divergent thinking or the ability to come up with many answers to a question. They asked people to draw as many geometric designs as they could in five minutes. They also asked people to list as many new uses as they could for everyday objects, such as a brick or a paperclip. The participants also filled out a questionnaire about their achievements in ten areas including the visual arts, music, creative writing, dance, cooking, and science. The responses were used to calculate a composite creativity score for each person. The researchers 
program computers to sift through the data and identify differences in brain structure. They found no statistical differences in connectivity within hemispheres or between men and women. But when they compared people who scored in the top 15% on the creativity tests with those in the bottom 15%, high-scoring people had significantly more connections between the right and left hemispheres. The differences were mainly in the brain's frontal lobe. The approach could also be used to predict the probability that a person will be highly creative simply based on his or her brain network structure. Maybe by scanning a person's brain, we could tell what they're likely to be good at. The study is part of a decade-old field called connectomics, which uses network science to understand the brain. Instead of focusing on specific brain regions in isolation, connectomics researchers use advanced brain imaging techniques to identify and map the rich, dense web of links between them. Researchers are now developing statistical methods to find out whether brain connectivity varies with IQ, whose relationship to creativity is a subject of ongoing debate. They're also using their methods for early detection of Alzheimer's disease to help distinguish it from normal aging. By studying the patterns of interconnections in healthy and diseased brains, they, also, they and other researchers also hope to better understand dementia, epilepsy, schizophrenia, and other neurological conditions such as traumatic brain injury or coma. But for now and for this article, we can safely say it is the highly connected brain that is associated with creativity and not necessarily uh, the brain that favors the right hemisphere. Next up on psychiatry today, poverty and high neighborhood murder rates increase depression in older adults. Now, just that statement in and of itself shouldn't come as a tremendous surprise. Uh, but the fact is, older adults who live in poor and violent urban neighborhoods are at greater risk for depression. The study comes to us from University of California, Davis, University of Minnesota, and other institutions. And it was published January the 23rd of this year in the journal Health and Place. And we'll discuss that subject and more mental health news when we come back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. 
So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news right now. We're talking about a mental health problem that intersects with a problem of crime and uh, urban living. That is that poverty and high neighborhood murder rates increase depression in older adults. The research specifically showed that older adults who lived in neighborhoods with more homicide and a higher poverty rate experienced more depressive symptoms. In fact, neighborhood homicide rates accounted for almost a third of the effect of neighborhood poverty on older adult depression. According to the World Health Organization, depression affects 120 million people worldwide. It is the third leading cause of global disease burden and it is projected that unipolar depressive disorders will become the leading cause of global disease burden by the year 2030. While depression is a major issue at any age, it is a particular concern for the elderly, increasing disability and mental decline and reducing quality of life. Given the shift towards an aging population, and the growing rates of depression among older adults. Understanding the factors that contribute to depression is critical. Neighborhoods in which older adults live are an important factor influencing depression and overall mental health. Researchers sought out to investigate the total effect poverty has 
on older adult depression and also to look at particular characteristics that might explain that relationship. Specifically, what is it about poor neighborhoods that make people depressed? Is it just the poverty? Is it just the crime rate? The study really highlights the role violence plays in affecting mental health. While previous studies revealed a link between poverty and depression, few have focused exclusively on older adults. In addition, previous efforts had not addressed the many conditions in poor neighborhoods that could contribute to older adult depression. Older adults tend to be less mobile and more dependent on the amenities, services, and sources of social support in the neighborhoods where they live. The researchers queried data from the New York City Neighborhood and Mental Health in the Elderly Study, a three-year study of elderly residents in the nation's most populous city. Depression was measured using a standard scale, the nine-question patient health questionnaire, the PHQ-9. The team looked at several neighborhood factors that might contribute to depression, such as high homicide rates, poor perception of safety, pedestrian and bicyclist injuries, green space, social cohesion, and walkability. The study sample was 61% female and 47% non-Hispanic white. In addition, 60% of respondents had incomes below $40,000. While many factors were examined, violence was the only neighborhood characteristic that substantially contributed to depression in older adults in impoverished urban communities. Researchers found that about 30% of the relationship between neighborhood poverty and depression was explained by the higher homicide rate. These findings could help shape policy to improve quality of life for older adults in urban neighborhoods. Violence in the pathway between poverty and depression is a critical finding. Now, uh, researchers can look at neighborhoods that are not only poor, but also have high levels of violence and possibly provide support for older adults in the area. The study highlights the key role that violence can play in shaping the mental health of local residents by investing in violence prevention in high poverty neighborhoods it's possible to reduce violence and improve the mental health of vulnerable populations. More work will need to be done to tease out the relationships between neighborhood conditions and depression for older adults in impoverished neighborhoods. There are still many pathways through which poor neighborhoods can shape mental health that we don't yet understand. Identifying these pathways will be critical if we want to identify suitable ways to promote mental health in local residents.
Well, uh, so again, not surprisingly, um, murder rates that are elevated in impoverished neighborhoods have a detrimental impact on mental health, no doubt. Decreasing homicides in impoverished areas would help matters, especially in older adults. Next up on Psychiatry Today, a discussion about postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. They are distinct from other types of mood disorders, according to new brain studies. Now, this article certainly caught my eye because... Uh, there's a great deal of discussion, and deservedly so, about postpartum depression um, and controversies about treating it with medication or not um, because of potential effects on the developing fetus of the medication and also potential effects on the newborn infant if a woman is breastfeeding while taking medication. And uh, also, the issue of is postpartum depression similar to other types of depression uh, only insofar as it, it occurs after giving birth or are there different characteristics compared to other mood disorders? So let's see what insights this article gives us. On the surface, postpartum depression looks much like other forms of depression New mothers struggling with it often withdraw from family and friends, lose their appetites, and of course, feel sad and irritable much of the time. However, many people and clinicians have underestimated the uniqueness of mood and emotional disorders that arise during pregnancy or shortly after giving birth. Psychologists explore the Neurobiology of Postpartum Depression and Anxiety in a review that was published on January 24th in the journal Trends in Neurosciences. Motherhood really can change the mother, which is something we often overlook. And we forget about examining the neurobiology of maternal mental health and maternal mental illness particularly anxiety. Overall, functional MRI studies, which show actual thought and brain activity in real time, show that neural activity in women with postpartum depression compared to people with major depression who had not given birth involves distinct patterns for new mothers with postpartum depression. For instance, the amygdala, a small almond-shaped part of the middle brain or the uh, <clears throat> limbic system is usually hyperactive in anxious and depressed people, but for the women with postpartum depression, the amygdala can actually be less activated. This is very interesting uh, that brain research would be able to differentiate states of depression and or anxiety that are postpartum versus those in women who have not given birth or in men. Uh, this is very new. This is very different. So it is an important finding. Postpartum depression is now listed as perinatal depression, a subset of major depression in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 
of Mental Disorders, the fifth edition, otherwise known as the DSM-5, which is the text that sets industry standards for diagnosing mental conditions. There is not any entry of postpartum anxiety in DSM-5, although uh, the lead author of this study said that one in seven new mothers are affected by it. Postpartum anxiety is estimated to be just as prevalent as postpartum depression, even though it receives far less attention in the literature. Many of these mothers aren't depressed, so their condition remains largely unaddressed. Or I would argue that they may be diagnosed with anxiety, but it's not uh, considered to be attributable to the depression, uh, or rather, I'm sorry, to the uh, pregnancy and just having delivered, which of course would be wrong. It has everything to do with just having delivered, uh, much as the postpartum depression sufferers. Postpartum mood disorders not only affect mothers, but also their infants. New mothers experiencing postpartum anxiety or depression are more likely to be irritable and have trouble bonding. And they can be more intrusive or irritated by their infants, more detached or withdrawn. The early interactions have a long-term impact. Children have uh, higher medical claims if they had a depressed mother. They use healthcare services more, have more medical office and emergency room visits than children of non-depressed mothers. And the cost of treating a mother with depression, lost in income and productivity alone, is about $7,200. But still, despite nearly affecting 1 in 10 women, postpartum depression and anxiety are still treated as extensions of major depression and generalized anxiety disorder, respectively. The experience of postpartum depression is also complicated by the fact that women are expected to enthusiastically embrace motherhood. Women with postpartum mood disorders don't feel they can discuss the issues and feelings they're having openly. But it's but um, new parenthood isn't always a happy time. We need to understand and talk about it, figure out why it can trigger mental illness in so many women, and if we can improve the health and well-being of the mother. That improves the health and well-being of the child and the family as well. That's going to wrap it up for tonight's podcast. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until the next time we get together. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night. Thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.